Okay, so this series is called The Greatest Love of All. You know, Jesus wants every single one of us to feel really loved. You know, that he really desires that because it's true. It's the reality. He loves us like nobody else does. His love surpasses everything. And so this series in particular, when it's kind of interesting because um, I love what... Patty was sharing, because I can certainly relate to that about wanting to pay, you know, wanting to, you know, w- uh, you know wanting to pay the check kind of thing was a great um, analogy. And I get that sometimes it's hard to receive his love. You know, we battle with feeling undeserving. Have you ever had somebody give you so much and you feel unworthy of the gift? Um... And I know that that's pretty typical when relating to Jesus and what he gave or, or in relating to God and the gift that he gave of his son. But it's really important, like God's desire and really, really wants us to get it. He so wants us to experience his love, to take it in, to not rebuff it, to not scoot it away or say, no, 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 I'm not deserving or to try and pay. Because God, it even says in the Bible that God and who God is is love. Everything that God does is motivated by love and is about love. And so God wants desperately for us to know of his love, and so does Jesus Christ. So what I want to do, because the, the reason that this whole section as far as the crucifixion and the gift of what Jesus gave is because it's in that that we see his love most prominently, most vividly, because the sacrifice was so great. So tonight we're actually going to be uh, going through the record of the crucifixion. And before we get to that, I want to take you in Isaiah 53 to one of the prophecies. There's many prophecies throughout the scripture that foretold so specifically about the coming of the Savior anywhere from hundreds to thousands of years before the Messiah came. You know... like very, very specific details, and we see one of the most powerful sections here that describes a lot about the crucifixion is in Isaiah 53. Now, I want to kind of bring you up to date because we've been kind of, this is the most detailed record in the Bible of any event, of any short, it's a short period of time, but it has volumes and volumes of things written about it because God really wanted us to understand it um, to, wanted us to really understand it. So we've been kind of, for the flat past few weeks, been kind of going through the record of uh, those scriptures. And last week, what we left with is where Jesus was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was stood before Caiaphas and Annas and Pilate. And during that process of the trial, it was humiliating, it was physically uh, unbelievable as far as the torture that he endured um, and the mocking. So there was, if you missed it last week, there were, the soldiers had put uh, uh, a sack over his head and punched his face over and over again and said, prophesy who hit you. And then as Pilate, when he was condemned to death, flogged him, and the Roman floggings were considered to be so brutal that Many people didn't live through it. In fact, Jewish floggings, the way that they did it is that they were, they whipped somebody 40 times with a cat of nine tails that had metal or bone at the end. 
and those were considered mild compared to the Roman floggings. So the Roman floggings went beyond. They were the same kind of instrument as far as the whip goes that they used, but they went way beyond the 40, 40 lashes that the Jews limited things to. So at this point, he's, he, you can imagine just physically the condition that Jesus is in when we get to the point that we're going to be picking up in this record. So in... Isaiah 53, though, it prophesies about a lot of the things that we heard last week. And in verse 1, it said, says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground, which was one of the prophecies um, that said that he would spring up um, uh, out of Jesse. And then it says, in, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And this specifically because you think about the promise of God sending a savior, a messiah, and that he would be the king of kings and lord of lords. How would you expect somebody that is going to be the great king that saves the world to arrive? <laughs> on an elephant, yeah. You'd expect a grand, pretty grand entrance into the world. And so this prophecy was speaking about the fact that when he entered into the world, when, when he was born, he was born in very humble surroundings. You know, the fact that he as about as humble as you get, being born um, in a manger and uh, uh, being surrounded by shepherds was a very, very humble beginning, and it had nothing to do with, you wouldn't be drawn to that person of going, oh, great, there's the Messiah. This is exciting. There was no glitz. There was no glitter, that kind of thing. It says in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And last week we had read, which is just... When you get the gravity of it is shocking where throughout this whole course, his friends had abandoned him. They had all left. His closest friends weren't anywhere to be seen. Peter, one of his dearest friends, denied that he knew Jesus repeatedly. But on top of that, Pilate had given the option of saying, you can release Barabbas, who's a murderer, a very notorious criminal, or you can release Jesus, and they picked Barabbas and were screaming, crucify him, crucify him, and mocking him over and over again. So, um, and that word sorrows relates to incredible anguish, uh, both physically and mentally and emotionally, um, that is that word, and familiar with suffering. In verse 4 it says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. And, you know, in, in this time, people considered that God caused affliction because of the fact that there was, the, there was no Holy Spirit, and so people had a very limited understanding of Satan and, and the devil and how the devil operated. So they had a very narrow scope, and so in, in this culture of this time, people attributed God, because of their limited understanding, that so affliction, if it was caused in their thinking, was that God was doing this to Jesus. That's how people would have perceived that at this time. Um, 
In verse 5, it says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And as we know, they drove the nails through his hands and feet, which we're going to be reading soon. And it talks about the way he was crushed for our iniquities, which is the fact that it says that he took upon him on that cross all the sins of the world from those that went before and those that were to come. And so that's why it's talking about that he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You know, it's so, it's part, the broken body of Christ, the, the actual physical suffering of Christ paid for our physical healing. It says that all healing, that it is possible right now, it is absolutely possible and available to God. You, it's not conditioned on anything but faith. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. Healing, it says in the Bible over and over again, is available from God. It's hard sometimes, I know, to have faith for that. But as you saw, Jesus never turned anybody away for healing. And it says that by his wounds, it says we are healed. In the New Testament, it says by his wounds we were healed, past tense. In the same scripture quoted, but it's saying it's been done already. The price has already been paid. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each, one, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a sl- lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, and so he did not open his mouth. And last week we had heard during the trial, when he was continually questioned by Caiaphas, you know, and by Pilate, like, to answer for the charges, but it happened a lot, and he, he didn't fight back. He's sentenced to death. This is not common that people are sentenced to death and they don't argue about it. You know, usually people f- fight like mad to try and, you know, that's why there's a million appeals and everything else on death row. People don't typically not speak when they've been sentenced to death, and yet Jesus went, didn't, didn't argue. Um, this is you know, prophesied hundreds of years before this actually happened. It says in verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For, for he was cut off from the land of the living. And it, in the east it was considered a curse to have not had children before you died. So this is a prophecy, too, that Jesus didn't have any children. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich, in his death, although he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So there's a couple meanings to this scripture. One is that, as you know, as you know, that Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea put him in his grave, and Joseph was a rich man at the time. So, and and during this culture too, it was considered that if you were rich, you were evil because there had to, typically there had to be a certain amount of corruption in order to have attained wealth and abusing of others. So the, the rich and the were, were thought of as evil, but it also applies to the fact that when he was crucified, he was crucified with the lowest of criminals because the crucifixion in that kind of death sentence was only given to the worst of criminals and the lowest of low of people of the society. It was the most humiliating, the most excruciating way to die. Um, it says in verse 10, yet the Lord, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his, 
And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, a guilt offering was a sacrifice that they did in the Old Testament that when you'd sin, that they would put the, the sins on that offering. It was a payment for sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, which is interesting because on one hand you see he doesn't have offspring, but now you see that he does. Guess who the offspring are? Us. We're the offspring. And prolong his days because the fact that, that Jesus was uh, risen from the dead and lives today. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Because that's the purpose, is that he got up from the dead and saw the light of life. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So this is speaking to the fact that victory, which we're going to talk about Sunday, because Sunday will be the last teaching in this series about the victory of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. And in the spoils, like when they had a victory, everybody shared in the spoils. We share in the spoils with Jesus Christ. It says that we are that we are joint heirs with Christ, that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, so that we share in that, that, um, in that victory. Let's go to Matthew 27. So isn't that cool, that record? Isn't that crazy? How, how detailed and specific is that? And it's written hundreds of years before this crucifixion ever happened. And let's go to Matthew 27. And in verse... 27, like I say, this is right after they had beat him, and then they took him away. The soldiers took him away. And, and then the governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head, and put a staff in his right hand. Now, I want to I kind of talk to you, because now this is this has been a famous image. We've seen it over and over. So right now, I think, at least for me, when I think of the image of Christ on the cross, I don't, it doesn't seem so shameful. It feels honoring because it's Jesus. Do you know, when I think of the crown of thorns, it symbolizes something else to me now. It symbolizes that, it symbolizes Jesus and what he gave. But if you can think about taking, taking you back to what would have been going on at this time, Again, his body, what do you think his back looked like after being flogged like that? It just, you know, the flesh just was ripped and ripped and ripped off of his back. Unbelievable as far as how much he must have been covered in blood at this time. And being punched and punched over and over again in the face. His face, I'm telling you, everybody says the passion was violent, that movie. I think it was neat and tidy compared to what they're describing here. Everybody freaks out about how violent it was. I don't think it could have possibly come close. I don't think we could have handled seeing what it probably looked like. His face, I'm sure, was not recognizable after getting beaten over and over again. You ever seen somebody that's punched over and over and over again in the face? It was probably black and blue and, you know, like not recognizable, I wouldn't think. Now, so here we've got this. He's got his clothes. He's been whipped with his clothing on, so you can imagine what that was like in the wounds that he's got on his back. So they rip that off because, of course, and you know how wounds are, and they start drying, the blood starts to dry. 
So you're talking about the fact that as they led him, I'm sure that the blood started to drive. Probably you medic people know some of this would be able to. If I'm being wrong, you can tell me later. But, um, you know, and then, and then they're ripping the cloth off of him from the clothing that he was wearing from that. That had been on his back. So you can imagine that that would reopen the wound again. And then they put a robe on him. And I'm telling you, it's not probably a nice linen cotton cloth because it's one of the robes that the, that the soldiers wore, which is typically going to be wool. Can you imagine having a wool robe now put on your back after you've been stripped bare and your back is like that? And then, where, who's, what do you think the conversation went like? They didn't just all of a sudden go, like, out of the blue, immediately go, oh, let's get a crown of thorns. So what do you think the dialogue even looked like? What would you imagine their conversations to be where they got to the place that they even put the robe on his back and the crown of thorns? Thorns, of all the things that you'd think of to make a crown out of, they came up with thorns. You ever poked yourself with a thorn from a rose? Just one thorn. You know, I've had be pretty sharp. So imagine making a crown of thorns. It's all because they wanted to humiliate him and show the joke that it was of what the heck kind of king are you? You are no excuse for a king. That was the point that they were making, that it was a joke to them that he thought that he had anything to do, that he ever claimed to be a king, that anybody said he was a king. He sure didn't look powerful. He looked like the most helpless, ridiculous. You know, he probably had a hard time standing at this point. And so that somebody thought it was funny to just go, yeah, some king he is, ha, ha, ha. Oh, I've got an idea. And they put it on his head. And then it says, they put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Some kind of king you are. Wow, you look real kingly, Jesus. They said, they spit on him and took a staff and struck him on the head again and again. So he's got, you can imagine, I heard head wounds bleed quite a bit too. You can imagine he's got thorns on his head and they're taking a staff and beating him over the head over and over again. The thorns smashing into his skull. I'm thinking his face was covered in blood. I'm thinking his hair was matted, covered in blood. And imagine what it would have felt like it's not just the, f I mean, honestly, we always think about the physical, this is at about as physically excruciating, and it's go going on now over, the, over hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. They kept him up 24 hours before this even began with torture. But imagine Jesus knowing that he's the son of God and that he came to give his life for these people. That his whole point in doing this was love for the people that were mocking him right now. That that's why he was going through the whole thing. And to have people making a joke of that. He was a man with feelings. 
after they had mocked him, which I'm sure it wasn't a 10 minute ordeal. I'm sure that they just had a grand old time for, till they get tired of it. They took off the robe and again, imagine the, the blood would start to dry on that wool robe that, and then ripping the robe off. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes, casting lots. Now, it's inter- you know, it's, they saying they crucified him like it's no big deal, but that was the por- part where where they put a nail through his hands and his feet to nail him to the cross. And the crucifixion was considered to be a very slow and agonizing death because, you know, you can imagine they, that, of course, that, you know, your flesh hanging from a nail that most people wound up dying from um, not being able to breathe and all the weight of your body hanging there on those nails. Um, it says, and then, and that was typical that they divided his clothes by casting lots, and we're going to read in a little bit that that was also prophesied that they would do that. In verse 36 it says, And sitting down they kept watch over him there. Above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. That was what they were charging him with. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, save yourself. You got some power? Doesn't look like it. You know God? Huh, wonder why you're hanging there. How could you know God? Doesn't look like you know God to me. Where is God now? Anyway, Jesus, where is this God you speak about? Let's see if he can get you off the cross, buddy. They're probably going to say buddy. So imagine being in that kind of physical pain, knowing that you're doing this for love, for those same people. Jesus gave his life for those people that were walking by and mocking him. And then it says, so they're just, everybody's walking by, making fun, laughing, thinking it's hilarious. Pretty dark. It's saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. You're really who you say? Well, why don't you just come down then? You don't look very strong now, Jesus, do you? On that cross. The same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved the others, they said, but he can't save himself. The king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. We'll believe. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. You know, I 
have you ever, I know sometimes walking with God, have you ever been in a place where you've had things not going so well for you or you've been in a hard spot and never had somebody make fun of your faith? Where is God now? Sure doesn't look like God's around for you, does it? This is to the extreme of that. If you've tasted a little bit of that, imagine saying, I'll believe. People that were not believing, I'll believe if you just come down right now. Man, doesn't that sound like there's some demons driving this? In the same way, the robbers who were crucified also heaped insults on him. Verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land, which would have been noon till three. Now, it's not normally dark from noon to three, wouldn't, is it? There's no explanation for that because typically there's not darkness from those hours. I believe it's probably indica- indicative of how sad God was to see this. You know, God gave his son willingly. Um... But God doesn't control people. God has some reasonable amount to predict what happens. But God had to sit and listen to that. God was sitting there listening and watching his son hang there and suffer. So it makes sense that darkness was over the land because it was a dark time. It's a dark time when the people that Jesus is dying for would treat him this way. There were people that crucified him were the same people that he came to save. In verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to go, there's a lot of questions about that particular verse of scripture, and I don't know that, uh, but I think that it, it's really clear that part of the understanding of this is if you go to Psalm 22, this is another prophecy of what was to come as far as the uh, Jesus, and it's very specific about what was going to happen with the crucifixion. Psalm 22, during this time period, was more well-known than Psalm 23 is today. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Pretty much, even if you've never been to a church before, most people have heard something of Psalm 23. Psalm 22 was actually more familiar to the people of that time, so much so that it's the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. So you'll see that this is the beginning of that psalm and and you'll see how much it's prophesying exactly what is happening right now and that Jesus was was going through at that time. Psalm 22 and verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is what it starts off with. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? And then I want to kind of skip through it because it's long and we don't have time to read the whole thing. Can I get Kleenex? Every time I cry, I get a runny nose and... Jeez, should know better than that. Hold on. Sorry. It says, we're going to skip down, go to verse 7. 
or actually let's go to six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. Go to verse, oh yeah, in verse eight. He trusts the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in that him. And in verse 16 it says, um, Dogs have surrounded me, and the Gentiles were considered dogs, and that would be the Roman soldiers. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and, I, and cast lots for my clothing. So you can see that, that there's so much in this psalm that's de- describing what's going on right now, and I believe that that definitely connects to why Jesus was speaking this way. It's also possible that Jesus felt really alone. I would imagine, I can't imagine going through this and not feeling some sense of being alone and to have so many people turned against you. This is not an easy journey and, um, in here, but he was still faithful to what God promised because it says in the Bible that at any time he could have actually walked away. It says that if any time God said he would have sent him 72,000 angels to, to walk away, so if he had changed his mind. So he did this whole thing willingly. I can imagine that that's why it made it all the worse to have people teasing him and saying, well, if you're the guy, why don't you walk away? And he knows he can. Um, let's keep reading. It says in verse 47, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he is calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And it says in one of the other gospels that his last words that he uttered were, it is finished. What was finished in this moment was your redemption and mine. In this moment, when he took his last breath, he paid the price and it was a done deal that absolutely washed away all of our sin. This, right now, in this moment, absolutely paid the price for that. We do not have to pay again. There is nothing that any of us have to do to pay the price. This was a big price. Don't you think it was enough? Whatever it is, whatever sin that, we, that you have that you feel convicted about in your own heart, I, whatever the darkest place of shame or guilt, God does not want you to be guilty. God does not want you feeling the burden of that. It has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. The darkest places in your life, the darkest parts of the soul, the most shameful moments, God has set you free. That was his desire. God never intended for any one year, not one person, to to feel the weight of sin and shame. We are washed clean. We are white as snow before the eyes of God because of Jesus Christ. Yes, we didn't deserve it. That's not the point. I mean, that is sort of the point. I mean, it is the point. The whole point of him dying is because we couldn't earn it ourselves because there was nothing that we could do about that. But it was God's love and the love of Jesus Christ to lay down his life. Jesus set in motion the commemorating of his sacrifice because he wanted us to remember and to receive it. He doesn't want us pushing it away and saying, no, 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 I got this. 
the desire for, for Jesus Christ and for God giving us his son was that we could receive the broken body and what he paid right here on the cross. Because this is the end of the dark part of the story. It ends right here and there's no darkness anymore. Because right now, right now, because of this moment, we are set free by Jesus Christ. Next Sunday for Easter, we're going to talk about that with the resurrection and all that Christ accomplished. But his broken body paid for our physical healing. Any healing you need in your body, Christ and all he went through for all those hours and all the torture paid for it. It's done deal. And his blood paid and washed every sin, every shortcoming away. What I want to do, because the Lord wants us to receive this. We're going to receive a communion, but I'd like you all to close your eyes. And I'd like you to pray right now. I'm going to pray. Because I... I really want this to be an experience where you receive the Lord. If there are places that you have not let his love in, where you have not received the gift of Jesus Christ, places where you've said, I'm not good enough that I want to pay for myself, whatever it is, I want you to right now think of yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want, to think, I want you to think about the two aspects of what he gave, his blood and his body. I want you right now to take to the Lord any needs that you have for your body and for your health. Because Jesus paid. And so I want you to think about and just prepare your heart to say, Lord, I want to receive this. I don't want my heart to be hard if there are walls there. Ask the Lord to help you tear them down and say, I want to receive, Lord. I want to receive what you have for me. You gave so much. I don't want to push you away. I don't want to push the gift that you gave away. So come before the Lord in your heart right now for his broken body to receive the communion. And I want you to think about his shed blood on the cross and what he endured that in that shed blood that he paid for every sin. I want you to think about the things that make it difficult where it's hard for you to see that you've been cleansed. What, are there any places that you have shame or guilt that you're still holding on to? Any places that you still are feeling undeserving and unworthy? I want you to think about what those are right now. And I want you to bring those things to the Lord Jesus Christ right now. And say, Lord, I battle with unworthiness. I battle with the fact that I am not deserving, but I want to receive from you. I want to receive the gift that you paid for 2,000 years ago by your blood on that cross. I want to receive that I'm washed clean, so that I can feel clean before you right now, Lord. I want to know that I'm clean before you that you don't hold anything against me that you love me that your arms are outstretched to accept me and receive me that all of me that I am yours that I belong to you help me Lord help me to receive this as I take the communion the broken body and the shed blood.
I want you to just take a minute to pray. And as you feel your heart is ready, and if you'd like to receive communion today, to have it be in a way that's contemplating really letting the Lord in and receiving the gift that he gave for you. I'm going to, um, what am I going to do? I'm going to, you know what, I, I think I'm going to move this around a little bit. Um, I'm going to put those on there. Though. Just be in prayer right now. So whenever you'd like, you can come receive communion.
Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your love for us. It's unimaginable to me how you loved us so much to give us your son. And Lord Jesus, I'm amazed by your love and by your goodness and by your sacrifice. And I ask that you help us all here to come to know you more, to come into a deeper, closer relationship, to tear down walls of things where the world has hurt us because, and where we've gotten confused about your love and your goodness and some of the things of this world. Lord, I just pray that we can come to know you and to know of your grace and really receive it and to stop trying to earn our way and stop trying to be worth it, but just to receive the gift that you gave, Lord, that we can live in that and know that we belong to you, that we're children of you, God, because of your sacrifice, Lord Jesus that we do have eternal life, that we've been cleansed from sin, and that we can live in victory, and that we can live not alone, but with a relationship with you, and that you're always near, that you're never far away. Help us, Lord, to experience your presence more and more, that it would be more vivid in our lives. And during this season, as we enter in, and Friday when we have some time to um, see the movie Passion and think even more about your sacrifice and Sunday and thinking about the incredible victory of your resurrection and how we can live life anew because of it. Um, Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.